Welcome, welcome to the Wild Feather. I'm excited to have Sadra Shadel on our episode today. And boy, are you in for a treat. She is full of grit, perseverance, and talk about overcoming obstacles and learning lessons and all kinds of fun. She is a true not giver upper, that's for sure. So without further ado. much for joining us today. I'm super excited to hear your story and your journey. And I know that you've definitely ridden the roller coaster. So we can just dive right in. I would love to hear how in the world you got started with No Evil Foods and what led you down this entrepreneur journey. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. So grateful for the opportunity to share the story. And yes, I have taken more than one roller coaster ride and some of them you know were faulty and threw me right out of the seat but i got back on so i think yeah. that's the important thing here well i think I was probably always destined to be a entrepreneur. Both my parents were small business owners and I was raised in a very non-traditional household or it was very non-traditional at the time. I think it's become a little more typical now, but I was raised homeschooled and vegetarian in the early and late eighties. And that was not done as frequently then as it is today. I have three brothers. We spent a lot of time in the kitchen. You know, I learned math working the register at my dad's wood stove and fireplace stores. So a lot of, you know, it's very like little house on the prairie. We had chickens and goats and sheep and all sorts of animals. And my family kind of always preached or taught that like, we love animals. We don't eat them. We, I was raised Jewish and, you know, and part of Judaism is taking care of our animals before we take care of ourselves. And so all of those sort of compassion elements were really ingrained in me at a very early age, you know, doing good deeds for people, giving back. And we were homeschooled. So we had time to do things like meals on wheels and community service activities that we wouldn't have been able to do as easily if we were in a traditional school schedule. So all of those things sort of set me off on the path of sort of thinking outside of the box. I ended up joining public school in sixth grade and ended up leaving public school at 16 and going directly to college instead. Really? Yeah. So I was very, very unhappy in school, just not feeling academically challenged, really wanting to take more control over my learning than public school was able to allow me to do. And so my parents kind of said, you know, if we could find a way for you to go to college early, is that something you'd want to do? And again, just being really supported in taking a path that was my own, at, at lots of steps in my growth. And so I said yes, and we found a college that accepted me early and went to a four-year school, got my bachelor's degree, graduated when I was 20, and right, went right into social service work. And so, so yeah. I have, a question. I have a quick question about yeah. homeschooling. So did your parents follow a certain program there's lots out there now but like a becca or like one of the homeschool curriculums shall we say yeah those didn't really exist then there were a few out there but by and large my parents 
created the curriculum. My mom in particular was very active in the homeschooling community and I would just speak to other folks, read books. I think John Holt, I think is the name of one of the educational philosophy leaders that she really followed. But it was about just child-led learning and following the lead of the kid. And, you know, if one of my brothers was really into dinosaurs, then we'd like dig deep into dinosaurs for a while. If someone else was really interested in... Yeah, yeah, just really self-led. And I think that that was really, it encouraged us to follow our interests and and to really dig deep. And also a lot of self-efficacy in like learning how to take a task, do research on it, you know, just a lot of empowerment, which I think serves me very well as I stepped into the entrepreneurial journey myself, because it was, there was just the mindset of being able to self-teach and being able to figure it out along the way and find the resources to dig deep in the topic that I needed to know. And that just, you could relate that into so many different areas. I have to agree with you. I homeschooled my senior year and it was way harder than going to regular school because mm-hmm. I, I was part of a curriculum, but you know, I had to watch videos and do workbooks and whatnot. And I basically was teaching myself, right? And so I can appreciate that. I have an aunt and uncle and a, another family that they have seven children each and they have homeschooled all of them. So I totally can appreciate the homeschool arena, you know, like you're growing up. So it's different for everyone as far as homeschooling goes. So that's why I was just curious. Yeah. Definitely teaches you to dive in and empowerment for sure and do the research. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So you went to college. Went to college. Social services. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was 20. My first job out of school was working at a community organization helping out-of-school youth who were not much younger than I was. But folks who had dropped out of school were working on their general equivalency diploma, people who were English speakers of other languages, helping to do English literacy skills, all kind of with the work readiness goal. So we wanted to prepare individuals for getting employment. So resume building, soft skills, interview skills, all of those things. And I did that for a number of years in Massachusetts and then was drawn to the West Coast, moved out to California, stayed with social services, worked in an organization in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, which I don't know if you're familiar with that area, but at that time, and I think still now, it was a a very transient kind of rough part of the city. And so I was working within that community, again, education, training, and development, and helping folks gain and maintain employment skills, people who were chronically homeless, formerly incarcerated, struggling with dual diagnoses, and helping to get them secure employment or at least move them closer to that so that the rest of their life needs could be met. You know, once you have stable employment, it's much easier to retain stable housing and sort of looking at the full circle of the continuity of care and making sure that every step is taken care of. After that, I moved into another organization that was working with individuals who were living with HIV and AIDS, still working on that employment training and development. That was so, I mean, I'm in my early 20s still, and that was just so eye-opening to me because I was working with people who've had these amazing, just moving, emotional, heart-wrenching experiences where they thought they were going to die. And they watched all their friends die. And they spent their life savings because they didn't think they were going to live to see the next year. And they, or they got very sick and they had gaps in their resumes for a long time and were out of their workforce. And now they're like, oh, wait, I have medicine that can help me now. I can live and I can thrive and I can have a life that I never thought I could have. But 
I've got all these gaps in my resume from these periods of time when I wasn't healthy. Like, how do I get past that? And helping to coach these people who have lived so much more than I had lived in those early 20s years was just such a period of learning and growth and an opportunity to open myself up to compassion and to kind of see how to be supportive and available to other people. And it was just such an experience, but it's hard. It was really hard. Yeah, I can imagine. I just think that environment's tough anyway to like go into just the challenges that those individuals face in general from a health perspective, right? And like prevention, even if they're not sick and then going into being sick and then overcoming Mm -hmm. that. That's and the stigma, you know, yeah, Yeah. stigma of trying to go out there and get back into the world as someone living with HIV. It's like, it's a lot. And there's a lot of support needed. Again, you know, just when you have those basics of your employment met that can help just open up so many doors in the rest of your your life. And we focused a lot on harm reduction and just so many different social losses that were so essential and critical to helping these communities that I was working with have a chance to thrive. And I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And throughout it all, I mean, it was a long kind of circuitous route to, to where I ended up, but throughout it all, I worked in restaurants because social services, they're not known for being very well-paid, hard work, low pay, but very, very worth it. And so I kept working in restaurants through this whole time and really developing an interest in a, in food and really wanted to explore. And I was vegetarian this whole time and, and I'm working in these restaurants where they're plating these gorgeous dishes and I can never enjoy them. And I'm just like, I wish that there was a way that I could go to a restaurant and sit down and eat this dish, but with a plant-based protein, you know, have the whole thing and just have the ability to enjoy these like chef curated meals. And it just didn't exist, but I got really interested in food. And it was when Michael Pollan was becoming very well-known and people were going local and I just got really into it. And I ended up taking a six and a half month trip to South America to work on organic and sustainable farms and really wanted to connect on a deeper level with food, get to know kind of how it was grown. And I did that growing up. I had gardens, but everything comes back. You know, the things that you reject as a child that your parents try to, you know, instill into you, you're like, oh, I don't want to eat my homegrown vegetables. But then, you know, you're 20 something years old and it's cool to farm again. So like I went and did that and, and learned that. And then when I came back, both my partner and I had been kind of traveling a little bit nomadic. We didn't have apartments. We didn't have jobs at that point. We're like, what are we going to do? We were living in Philadelphia. We wanted to do something that aligned with this newfound kind of sense of where we fit in the system of consumption, I guess I'll say. If we had started to pare back on our purchases as much as possible, we'd started to make our own like deodorant and toothpaste and things like that. And so we wanted to grow more food. So my parents said, hey, you're welcome to move back to this dirt road in upstate New York and farm our land. So we moved back, my partner and co-founder, to upstate New York. We moved into my parents' basement. We had a composting toilet. We were really trying to like live as close to the ground as possible and grow and, and make as much as we could for ourselves. If we wanted pasta, we tried to make the pasta ourselves. We were making really? sauerkraut from the cabbage we grew. We were tapping maple trees for maple syrup, but we were still buying our plant-based proteins at the store. And that's kind of really where the story of No Evil Foods began, because as we started to kind of turn a more critical lens into the purchases that we were making, we also started to look at our plant-based proteins, which we never questioned because we're like, great, it's not made from animals. Mm -hmm. It tastes okay. 
that that's our benchmark. Like it does the things we need it to do. But at this point, we needed plant-based proteins to do more. We wanted them to be more nutrient dense. We wanted them to be more versatile, to be able to be manipulated in a more culinary way so that we could recreate some of these dishes that we're serving at restaurants. And we weren't finding them in the grocery store. We were finding things that were really lots of oils, lots of heavily processed ingredients, hydrolyzed proteins, things that just were very, very stripped down from the plant-based source that they were originally based on. And so we said, well, shit, if we can turn water from a tree into maple syrup, then like, let's make plant meat at home. And so we started to create these early, early iterations of what would become No Evil Foods in my parents' basement kitchen. We chased the sun. Were you working while you were doing this? Yeah, we were working in restaurants about probably three, four days a week and then doing this sort of home studying thing the the rest of the time. And it was a really nice balance. Yeah, because I find that the cabbage, for example, making sauerkraut and the maple syrup and doing all of that stuff, it takes some time, right, to like go all natural and grow yeah. everything. So I was just wondering was if this was like a full-time gig or if you still worked. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We still work. And there was a lot of things we weren't doing. I mean, like we're not making our own clothes. Like there's, we're still (laughs) driving like gas powered cars. You know, there's a lot of people who go way off grid and are living much, much closer to the earth. And than we are, we were kind of like, it was homesteading light and we were selling some of our produce to local restaurants. And so kind of a little bit of a market economy and really trying to kind of dip our toes in that water. And it was kind of our first entrepreneur journey too. We called it Pirate Cat Farms and we thought we'd started a business, but we had no idea what starting a business really was. But uh, after a couple New York winters, we decided we wanted to chase the sun. So he and I, his name's Mike, he's, he's the co-founder as well. We moved down to North Carolina and we were still bartending and working in restaurants and then, you know, really doing the, the gardening thing at our house as well, a small CSA that we were selling. And we're like, we need we're not getting younger here. So like, what do we want the next few years of our life to look like? How do we want to give back to our community? How do we want to show up in the world? And we decided that we wanted to share our plant meats with the community. And we we were living in Asheville, North Carolina, which is a more progressive area of the barbecue belt and someplace with a little more appetite for just a little bit more, not, not a huge amount, but a little bit more of an appetite for plant-based eating. But we really wanted to offer that to our community. We loved how food, offered an opportunity for connection, how it brought people together, how it had the opportunity to bring different types of people to the same table and really serve as a means to connect. And that was really valuable and really important to us. And it's kind of what we've been doing with the the gardening thing for a couple of years and selling, you know, working with other farms and going to farmer's market and just doing that community connection and that community building that was really important. And we we loved that aspect of it. So we said, you know what, let's let's just give it a shot. We don't know if anyone's going to going to eat it, but we're going to try. And we gave ourselves six months to figure it out, to figure out what the licenses were and all of the proper documentation and where we were going to make it, what we were going to call it. We refined our recipes and I'm a really throw it together kind of cook and I'm not much for measuring. And so Mike kept trying to drill me down into like, if you add another pinch of something, like you have to measure it. And so we did all of that in those first six months and, and got everything dialed in took it to farmer's markets in February of 2014, and we sold out our first day. And really? yeah, we it blew our minds. Wow. Okay. So your first 
that was before like you hadn't created an llc or any of that stuff right had we you? had an llc okay yeah yeah yep. okay. and you didn't did you have a website we did not i don't think we had a website when we very first started we had a facebook page it's uh it was a Facebook page. Oh, Facebook. Page. Um, okay. So yeah, I think I think we had a Facebook page. I don't believe we had a website yet, but we were really fortunate that we got some coverage in the local newspaper ahead of our first farmers market, and so people ah. knew about us, and oh, so cool. they came. Cool. Yeah. So um, the best market was basically everyone at the farmers market. Yes. Right? Okay. Which was actually really awesome because, yeah. you know, farmer's market goers are very vocal in their opinions of things. And if they like it, they'll tell you. And if they don't like it, they'll tell you that too. And so it was really nice in the beginning to have that direct line of communication with the people who were engaging with our products. We would always sample. And so people would come in and they'd taste it. We'd get to hear their feedback live. And it's, we didn't actually do very much iterating because most of the feedback was really favorable. The one thing that we did do, we started out with our two sausages, our chorizo and our Italian sausage. And one thing that we did do was bring our chicken to market soon after because people wanted something that wasn't so heavily seasoned. They wanted like a more neutral base for kids or for adding to, to other recipes. And so that was something it, the customers were driving us to add more market or more products pretty early on. So it's always been very much like, what do the customers want? Where do they want to buy us? Soon grocery stores were calling us because customers had been asking for us in the store and they're saying, hey, do you sell retail? And we're like, mm, no, but let us figure out how to do that. And so it was very much kind of, we were, even from the beginning, we were a little bit behind the ball because I don't think that we knew what opportunity was ahead of us. And so it was very much a say yes, figure out how after kind of pattern. And we got into grocery stores and we're like, okay, we need barcodes. How do you figure out how to do barcodes? We need packaging. And, you know, at the farmer's market, we had like a butcher shop set up where I had made all these felt meats like these giant hams and t-bone steaks and we would hang them off of the farmer's market tent and call it a vegan butcher shop which you know stopped people in their tracks and I'm like what in god's name is a vegan butcher shop and then we'd say come on up taste it it's it's meat made from plants and you know that would start a conversation and a lot of people would just you know told us spoke their minds and, and walked away and a lot of people tried it and loved it but we just would wrap it in butcher paper with a sticker on the top to seal it and a sticker on the bottom because we didn't have it was black and white stickers because we yeah, didn't have a color I was printer ask you how you packaged this okay yeah yeah so it was just it was saran wrap at the beginning saran wrap with scotch tape to seal it and then butcher paper around it with a black and white sticker when we got into retail we added a back sticker that had the barcode and so just like small steps and pro progressions we're still keeping our restaurant jobs on the side as we're building this thing but the beautiful thing about Asheville is and one of its downfalls is that it's a very heavily touristed city and so people would visit from all over and the farmers markets were often a destination for tourists and so we would have people coming to sample our products who didn't live in Asheville and they'd return to wherever they were visiting from and find that they couldn't find our products so then they were asking for us in their local grocery stores in Maryland or their local grocery stores in Florida or wherever that might be and we were getting 
phone calls and emails. Hey, you know, we tried you. Where can we get your products now? So we started cold calling natural products grocery stores in these areas that we would have customer outreach from. And we would start selling over the phone our products to these grocery stores just direct. And we're like FedExing boxes out all across the country, really starting to build an organic business. Was that difficult? Because I've always heard that it's like a fight and a challenge to get space in grocery stores like that it is absolutely a fight and a challenge to get space in grocery stores i think at the time that we were doing this so natural grocery stores are typically a little easier to work with than your your big chains for sure or your more conventional grocery stores and also i think the time that we were doing this in 2014 2015 there hadn't been a lot of innovation in or newcomers into the plant-based meats space in a long time. And so I think the retailers were really excited to see something new and particularly something that they had customers coming in saying, hey, we want to buy this product. How can we get it? So that definitely helped. I think when customers ask for things, I don't know if they realize how impactful that can be to helping small brands gain traction at retailers. So if you're listening, customers ask for your favorite small brands. It really does help. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So like how many markets did you, you were, oh wait, were you putting them on dry ice or did you need to like, if you're, yeah, we, we were shipping them frozen with ice packs Ah, and yeah, probably about 250 stores at that point. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Man labor too. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first like three years of the business. And then in 2017, that's when we sort of had our boat big growth kind of plateau. We went to a natural products grocery store in a natural products a trade show rather in 2017 called Natural Products Expo East. There's two major trade shows for the natural products industry. One's on the East Coast, one's on the West Coast. We went to the one in the West or East Coast and we won a prestigious industry award called the Nexty for our packaging. We had just rebranded and gone to a home compostable package and we won an award for best new packaging innovation. And it was right when Nestle had bought Sweet Earth. And so there was this bright spotlight on plant-based meats that there hadn't been in the past. And we just got stormed at that show and, and our booth was complete. I had my dad working and cooking samples. Like everybody was pitching in. We had homemade our trade show booth and, you know, carried it in by hand and assembled it ourselves. And it's like total grassroots, like DIY effort. And, but really got a lot of industry attention after that show. We're still working out of a, a shared use manufacturing kitchen. So like a rent by the hour place that, you know, really allowed us to scale up along with the growth of our company, add on people as we needed to add on people. And we started to build a team. We became living wage certified. So that was something really important to us. Like in addition to making these great products that were simple ingredients and nutrient dense and more versatile than what was out there, we were really focused on trying to build a conscious like company at the same time. And there were a lot of learnings that we took out of that process because I think because of my social services background, because Mike and I are both Jewish and just that idea of giving back and, you know, Akun Alam or, you know, preparing the world was so inherent in kind of our mindset. We really wanted to build that into our company at every step. But I think that we were a little premature on some of those those efforts that ended up kind of being our undoing or our downfall in in the end. I mean, we'll we'll get to that I think a little bit later. I really want to be yeah. wage certified. I've never heard of yes. that. Yes. 
So there's different organizations that do it. MIT has their own living wage certification. We had a local organization in Asheville that did it, but they essentially look at the cost of living for a particular area or you know, geographic area and by how much an individual or a family requires to earn to be considered a living wage. So it's not a minimum wage, which we all know is very much lower than what it should be to actually live and thrive, but they set a living wage. And so it's kind of a benchmark or a guide Line, and there's different thresholds. If you offer health insurance, a little bit less. If you don't offer health insurance, it's a little bit more. And then you make a commitment to your starting wages all being at least living wage or higher. Uh, and you earn a certification for that as well. And a little trust marker emblem that says we're a, a living wage certified company. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Learn something new every day. Yeah. So, you know, trying to really embed some of those, some people go B Corp right away. We were much too small for that, but we tried to put in some of those concepts, I think, of benefit corporations and how to be a conscious business. And so Living Wage Certified in 2017, we went to this big trade show, we won a big award, and then overnight, we basically went from like 250 stores to like 1500 stores. So basically the trade show was in September by like February of the next year, we were in 1500 grocery stores and it was just an insane explosion of growth. Yeah. And so at that point we said, okay, <laughs> looks like we've got a real company on our hand. What can we do to get this to the next level? So we went out and we raised some capital. We started to bring on some more team. We brought on, you know, a VP of sales. We got national broker representation, really tried to take it more seriously as a business. We're like, this isn't just like a little cottage thing where we're going to have this balanced lifestyle that we imagined where we've got like our beautiful thriving garden. And then we go to the <laughs> farmer's market and everything is just so peaceful, like all of a sudden, wham, like we are business people and we've yeah. got a company on our hands and we've got employees and it's like overnight, it became this entirely different beat. We were just so inspired by the impact that we were having. We were hearing stories of people saying like, I've never, never thought I'd be able to taste my grandmother's Italian sausage again. And then I tried your Italian sausage and it brought tears to my eyes wow. or stories of people who had had like dramatic weight loss from um, a plant-based diet and having our meats be such a big part of their ability to transition to a plant-based diet, to be able to commit to it long-term, to feeling better, like just life-changing stories that you're just like, okay, like this is why we're doing this. This is not social services, but it's another way that we can be really impacting people's lives and improving it for the better. And, and that was something that really motivated us to, to keep pushing and to keep growing because as we saw it, the larger that we got, the more impact we had the ability to have. And so we came at it from first animal welfare, but then started learning about all the health implications of animal agriculture and the environmental implications. And it was just so dramatic and we, it felt so pressing that we're like, we have to go, like we have no time time to waste. We have to grow. We have to do it now. We have to do it fast. And we've got to get big as quickly as possible because like the world is on fire. <laughs> and like yeah, we really right. had, we didn't feel like there was any other option. Yeah. How did you reach your production to that? I mean, so you, overnight you went from 250 stores to 1500 stores. Like one, how did you increase your production that quickly? Two, how did you maintain that level of production? And and like, how often did you have to ship these shipments? Like what's the shelf life on the, on the food? 
Yeah, well, fortunately, our shelf life is fairly long, so it would allow us to stop up our production. So it's distributed frozen. And so frozen, it's a year shelf life. And then the grocery store either leaves it frozen and, you know, puts it in the freezer case, or they can take it out into refrigeration. And then like the time starts ticking then and they've got six weeks once they thaw the product so that worked out pretty well in terms of the production it was pretty insane because we were still doing our own manufacturing and we were still using the shared use manufacturing space and so we started running second shifts and this is like an 800 or 900 square foot kitchen and we were able to do over a million dollars in revenue granted we're not profitable by a long shot but a million dollars in revenue out of this 900 square foot kitchen which is pretty insane yeah yeah Yeah. it's small it was like a dance and our team was just (laughs) remarkable in how they were able to manipulate the space and continuously like turn it over for the different products and move the cart this way and shift the table that way and it was just it was really cool to see your vision coming to life and creating good jobs for people along the way and it was just everything was kind of singing along and we were working two shifts and we were getting the products out you know multiple days a week two shifts and but we knew that we couldn't maintain that pace or that that dance for long and so we took on some more capital to build out our own facility we spent all of 2019 end of 2018 to 2019 building out our own 20,000 square foot facility uh, and really kind of taking on a lot of investment to do that and to grow because Mm -hmm. the opportunity get VC funding or did you, what route of capital did you go? Yeah, we ended, we did go VC. Well, we did a couple of things. We did friends and family rounds, which, you know, we're not friends with the Kardashians or anything. So our friends and family rounds were very generous, but you know, on the smaller side. And then we, we did mission aligned investments. So there's a lot of smaller impact driven VCs that are particularly focused on displacing animals from the food system. And so we went first to those mission aligned who, you know, that is their, their sole purpose is to displace animal from the food system for environmental or ethical reasons. And so they're looking to fund companies whose mission is to do the same. So that was really nice. So we could align our investments with our values at the same time. And then we did some more semi-traditional VCs as well that were a little more, I would say, revenue oriented, still looking for impactful companies, whether that be just environmental impact, but not specifically animal agriculture based. I've learned a lot about investment and the various tracks that you can go on since then. And I don't know that I would have taken the same path if I did it again. I think that there are so many different ways to raise funds, first of all, without having to give up equity, but there's also so many ways to raise capital that takes you off the VC track and allows you to grow sustainably instead of kind of growing fast, sort of at all costs. I think that the the sustainable growth model is, especially now as we head into a recession, I think companies who are choosing the sustainable growth model made a really smart choice. And uh, there's yeah, I think slow and steady does often win the race, even when the world is on fire. You still gotta build for the long long term. For sure. I didn't mean to inter- intercept there, but funding is always like a hot topic for entrepreneurs and founders, and people yeah. are always asking me about funding and where to get. So it's nice to hear different avenues because I feel like funding is pushed on founders and entrepreneurs a lot, especially if you get involved in the startup community. 
And yep. realistically, it's not always the answer. So that's why I was just wondering what route you took and if, and yeah, like your story behind that, if it was a challenge or whatnot. But it sounds like you went a diff several different routes, which is nice to have a diverse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we took on loans as well. We took out some loans. We we got a few grants. I mean, I think that we were trying to do a couple of different things. But I agree, and I think that the the conversation with founders in the startup community needs to shift from just growth at all cost. And you know, it's especially I think something interesting happened in plant based foods where around the same time, you know, Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat are starting to come and they're building their companies like tech companies, mm -hmm. uh, which is something that we hadn't really seen in food in the same way before. And so they're taking on these enormous investments from VCs, like 400 million big investments and really building out these companies with the tech company model, which is like grow at a loss. That's totally fine. And so some of this guidance, I will say, and I use that term loosely, was also coming to us from our investors where they're saying like, it's totally fine. Like we've got investors that when they invested, they wanted to join the board. That's kind of was part of their terms of investment. So we built a board that was, you know, stacked with our, our several of our investors and they're telling us first time business owners, myself and Mike, that it's totally okay to grow at a loss. They're not encouraging us to be profitable. They're not encouraging us. Well, I mean, they are encouraging us to be profitable, but they're not encouraging us to take the shortest path to break even. They're saying like, it's okay to have this dramatic cash burn because the plant-based industry is growing so quickly and eventually you'll get economies of scale and you'll grow to a certain point where you'll exit and you'll get this six X multiple right. and right. sort of so of course we're going to grow and take on debt and take on more equity and raise more capital based on the advisement that we were getting. And we were hungry for that opportunity and we thought we were going to miss out on it because at that time, so many more players were entering the market and we were like, we don't want to miss this chance like, oh, to- against time. It's like- We're on a race against time. We were, yeah, it was, yeah. but we're, we're building this car while it's moving at the same time. And you only have the advice of the people that are around you. Right. Your team is only as strong as the team that's at your side. And we brought on people who were strong and more experienced than us. And we really trusted them. And we didn't always get the best advice knowing once we're on the other side of it. I think as a first time founder, you just, all of a sudden you're a CEO. Right. And it's like, you're not qualified to be a CEO. Like what if, what if all of a sudden it's just on your business card one day. And particularly in our case, we didn't go to business school. We don't have that pedigree or that background. And so there's so much trial by fire and there's so much learning that happens on the fly. But as soon as you have a team, there's also so many consequences. It's not just you and your founder anymore, you and your co-founder that are responsible for you. You are the ones that are responsible, but now you have, it's like, you've, you've got this family to take care of. You, right. you know, I'm just using that analogy because we're parents and like, all of a sudden it's not just you, your, your own like parental unit, but you've got this community of people that you are now responsible for. You're responsible for them. You're responsible for their kids, not just this insulated little network anymore, but your qualifications can only grow as fast as they can grow. And I think one of the things about being a first time CEO is that sort of like being a toddler where it sounds 
crazy to say, but you don't always know what the outcome is going to be until you've done something. And so a toddler doesn't know that the stove is hot until they touch the stove. And as a startup CEO, CEOs are successful because they've done it multiple times or because they've been groomed by going up the corporate ladder, so to speak, for several years where they were under the direction of someone else and they were mentored and they were their skills were built over a period of years to then you know, excel them to the CEO role. But when you go from 250 stores to 1500 stores and you go from 16 employees to 60 overnight, that's a huge gap in learning that you're trying to catch up on. And you're also externally focused. You're thinking about your branding. You're thinking about you, your retailer growth. You're thinking about your investor relations. You're thinking about your PR. You have all of this external focus, but then all of a sudden you've got 60 people on your team and you need an employee handbook and you need HR and you, like all of these things that you're just like, oh gosh, how do I like, how do I catch up? And yeah. you just can't. It's really crazy. Like a business card with a title doesn't equal anything. Was that? Did you have kids at this point? Uh, yes, we had our first kid in 2015, at the end of 2015. So about two years into the company, we, we became parents as well. So pure insanity. Pure. It just sounds exhausting, honestly. Like there's so many. Well, and one point I just want to make, which it didn't dawn on me until you were talking about how you were getting advice from investors. And oftentimes I think, well, a couple of thoughts. One is you mentioned you you weren't groomed. There's that route, right? But a lot of VC firms, a lot of people that I have met in the funding world haven't been CEOs themselves, right? They're they're investors. Yeah. They're looking yep. at numbers and they have I don't know what the percentage is, but I do know that it's really low. It's like I don't know one out of every twenty or thirty investments they make are make the big millions billions like some of them are successful but it's not like every single one of their companies are like yeah. the big hit right so they're giving you advice but they've never been in a ceo's shoes before so take it with a grain of salt i'm not i'm not dismissing them whatsoever because i think they're valuable and they have their value but I think oftentimes as founders, we, we don't even think about that because we're so caught up in getting funding and listening to their advice and trying to follow their advice because we basically are, we have to live. Sometimes they kind of own us or own our company. Yeah. Oh, oh, yes. Or both. <laughs> how much you give them, right? But it's like something I've never thought about because you just think that they're the experts and they're the financial folks and they've been there, done that, and they know this, right? But reality is, is they haven't been groomed to be a CEO, just an investor. Yeah. And you figure that real fast when the shit hits the fan because they don't know what to do. Oh. And then you're in a room full of people who don't know what to do. Oh, I have and... really good stories coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So everything was going really great until it wasn't. But I mean, just holding on that thought for just a second on the, the room of investors, I think that's the other thing too, for startup founders. Again, like a lot of investment firms will request board seats as part of their terms. But the thing that's really interesting about having a board that's also investors is that they are protecting and advising on their investment. 
they're not necessarily, especially if you're trying to build like a conscious company at the same time, your motives may be very different. And so I think, and this is something we did not do, but I think, and this is one of the reasons that people become B Corps or become benefit corporations legally is to help protect against some of these things. But one of the things I wish that we had in hindsight is create a independent board of advisors mm. because we only had our investors in the room. Mm for the most part. And they're they're solely focused on re- making a return on their investment for their LPs. And then that's what their job is. And so they're going to guide the company based on that so that they can do their job well. Right. Your job as a CEO might be very different in terms of how you want to build or scale or grow your company or what benefits you might want to offer that are in, sometimes if they can be in alignment, but there's also a lot of opportunity for those things to be very different. And so I think that having that in the board of advisors is a wise move to make. I think that's a good Uh, hold to have a board of advisors to pull people in from the different components of the business. So whether it be technology or finance, well, we won't do finance, but marketing, somebody, so you have a team that can contribute all these different components. Maybe it'd be food mm-hmm. manufacturing, maybe it'd be environmental safety, whatever the case may be. But I think that's a good point. Very yeah. good point. Okay. So you're blowing up. You've got 1500 stores. Did you get more than that? Things with the VP of sales that you had, like, were they continuing to grow and you're building out this 20,000 square foot building and taking on more capital? And I'm assuming sales are going well. Are they going well? Sales are going well. We continue to get new retailers. I think we're probably up at like 2,500 stores right now, close to 3,000. We're global in Whole Foods and all the stores. We're in Publix. We're in Wegmans. We're probably in some Kroger stores by this point. We're building our own facility because we got into Target. So all of this growth on the horizon. And so we're like, okay, we have to build. We got to go bigger because we cannot meet our existing demand. And so when you can't meet your existing demand, you can either slow the demand and slow your growth and just keep it really sustainable and steady, or you can scale to meet your demand. And so that's what we decided to do. We built this facility in 2019. We, once we built the facility, you know, we had, like I said, this jump from 16 people to 60. And so now we are fair chance certified. So we are hiring folks that have been formerly incarcerated and giving second chances to individuals, bringing some of my social services work kind of back into my work with Knowable Foods. So providing second chance work opportunities for folks. We are still living wage certified. We are offering free vegan lunch to our entire team once a week. We are offering equitable, a gender equitable parental leave, six weeks of of fully paid parental leave, regardless of whether you're the birthing parent or you're not. We are offering an employee assistant assistance program for like, you know, critical mental health needs. We're offering paid, you know, health insurance at this point, really putting a lot of effort into how we take care of our team. People, yeah. Yeah, effort into people. But we also have a bit of a, storm brewing, I think, with our people who had been with us for a very long time. And some of them weren't thrilled about some of the choices we made with our growth. Going into Walmart, for instance, we saw that as a company as an opportunity to create accessibility. Most people live closer to a Walmart than they do Whole Foods, for instance. And so in our mission to create more accessibility to plant-based foods across diverse communities, we saw Walmart as an entry point for doing that they saw that as a kind of deal with the devil. Uh 
And so we started to have a little bit of friction between what the company wanted to do and how we saw our growth and what some of the people who had been on the manufacturing team with the company for a long time and have kind of grown up saw. The, they wanted to see us only in natural grocers and co-ops. And we saw that as not a realistic approach to growth. And so there started to become a little bit of friction there, despite all of the investments, I guess I would say, in creating a workplace culture of all the benefits and community that we were building. We had a very tight-knit team. And because we had that tight-knit team, anytime that they came to us with something like health insurance, for instance, and they said, hey, we want health insurance, well, great, we'll figure out a way to make that happen. So we were very much a yes culture. And when the team illustrated that there was a need that needed to be met, I don't think we ever said no. I think we always said, okay, like yeah. we'll do that. And sometimes that probably wasn't the right decision from a financial standpoint, but it was the right decision from a, a heart standpoint. But we almost always said yes, yes to, to giving our team what they needed. But we're scaling up into this facility we're getting much larger. The first six months in a facility, it's like working out the kinks, like left and right, like nothing works. You, you've got much bigger equipment, You've your process flows change, your critical safety control points change, new systems need to be written and then rewritten. You're figuring out your staffing, there's natural people that come on, there's natural attrition with people like, oh, I don't wanna be in food manufacturing, like I wanna be a line cook, like this isn't what I thought it was gonna be. So a little bit of kind of just turnover and small kind of Waters there. But going into the end of 2019, our team starts thinking about a union. And we're sitting out on the coffee table in front of our offices one day, and someone from the union comes up, and we don't look like CEOs. So they thought we were food production workers. And they came up to us and they said, Hey, so do y'all work at No Evil Foods? And, and we said, Yeah. And they're like, Oh, well, you know, we're thinking we're going to be organizing a union here. We're with. I don't even know which one it was at that point. I don't think it was the one that they ended up actually trying to organize with. But that's, we're like, oh, that's interesting. And so the next few months was just hell. And then that turned into the next few years of hell because we got advice from our, when we found out about this, we went to our board and said, this is happening. We don't understand it. We thought we had a really good thing going here with our team. We really love working with them. They come to us whenever they need help, but now there's interest in a union. And it's, it's 40 or 30, I think of our 60 employees who are in the voting unit who are, are interested in this. There's also lots of people who are coming to us saying, we don't want the union. Like I've been in a union before and I never want to work in a union again, or team coming to us and saying, we don't understand what signing this union card means. Like, can you help us? And at this point, there's so much legal red tape around what you can and can't say to your team that you almost like your lips and hands are tied. Like you can't do anything to help anyone or to educate them because the law prevents it. And so we went to our board and we said, look, at, we think that there's union activity happening here. And the, and the board said, shut it down, shut it down at all costs. And so that's what we did. And we didn't well, okay, have, so let's yeah. Because I have no idea how this works. I yeah. obviously am not a union person. So employees can just get together and say i want to create a union like what are the stipulations to start a union and was it one bad apple that was having a rough time that started this wave like well let's start there because i have a gazillion <laughs> questions <laughs> yeah we're still i mean two and a half years later we're still trying to unravel it all and kind of what the progression of events were i wouldn't call them a bad apple but we do know that there was someone who joined our company with the explicit 
kind of intention to unionize it. They had done it at a previous company. Mm. And so they're called a salt. So they send a salt in to sort of start inoculating the staff of like, hey, you should get a union. Hey, you should get a union. And unions aren't bad. And I think that this is the thing that's like, we didn't know enough about it at the time, except for our board saying, shut it down at all costs. We've never seen a, a unionized company get VC investment. Like you're going to need more money. If you're going to need more money, you can't have a union. And so we're like, okay, there's no option here. And we hired an attorney to help us through it. And it was the same attorney that we used for like workers comp or like mm. general run of the mill employee relations stuff. They also, which we didn't know at the time, happened to be like one of the biggest union busting law firms like in the country. And so they were saying, okay, we're going to do, we're going to talk to your team and we're going to lay out like what unionization means for them. And we really thought that we were just like educating the team on the union. Little did we know, and, and it sounds so freaking naive at this point, but like, they're really good. Like they're attorneys that are super skilled at this. And they also told us this is just education. This is totally legal. And it was totally legal because they were very measured on what they could say and what they couldn't say. So they, we held meetings, which we really thought were like educational meetings of we're going to tell you, help you understand what your options are here and what signing a card means and what union representation means and how that changes your dynamic with us that are, you know, the business and the company and how that makes things take longer or might require more conversation in certain areas. And it just really tried to keep it as, and I think we did keep it pretty as neutral as possible, but it was definitely favored towards discouraging the union, but we didn't really... At the time, Mike and I didn't really have the full spectrum of knowledge that what we were doing was busting the union and really actually actively dissuading our team from unionizing, which was very different than our values and our morals as a socially conscious company, which has an open door policy and wants to create community with their team. And so we were inadvertently, I don't even know what the right term is, but we were undoing the things that we had built at the same time, but we didn't have much of a choice here. Right. And so- well, Do you know how many yeah. people it takes to form a union at a company? I think that you have to have a minimum of 15 to have a formal a union. Okay. Yeah, you need to, to file a petition, and I don't, I'm not an expert here on, on that aspect of it, but to file a petition, there's all sorts of ways you can do it where you have like an unofficial like workers union or you can have an official one. That's what our team was seeking to do, which was be represented by the United Food Workers Union. And so to be represented by like the Teamsters or like United Food Workers, that you need to have a minimum number of people who were committed, who signed a union card to then do a petition for a vote. And so they got the minimum of like 15 people and it ended up getting voted down dramatically. It was like a 15 to 43 vote or something. So, so the whole company has to vote. Only the people who are able to be union members. So it was essentially anyone who was not a manager at the company, anyone that was on our production team mm -hmm. uh, or worked in the warehouse for the most part was able to be the eligible body. As the owner, do you have to approve the union for it to go? No, you don't. So you don't, you can voluntarily choose to recognize the union, which is basically just opening the door and saying, yeah, of course, like, come on in, you can unionize our company. 
no problem. We didn't do that again. The advice of our legal team at the time and our board was like, don't, don't do the, the union. And so we didn't do that. And so we did the meetings instead to try to educate again, didn't know exactly what we were doing. Then the employees had the opportunity to vote. And I mean, there's a lot of things that the union has the ability to do that like, I still don't think are right. Like they can go to your house, to an employee's house and knock on their door to try to encourage them to join the union. And I can see why they do that because they can't come into our business to encourage them to do that. And so that's how they gain access, so to speak to the employees so that they're trying to create a fair playing field of like, we're telling you what the union can do for you. And in this case, the company is telling you what the union won't do for you. And so, but I, like, if it was me, I don't want people coming to my house. <laughs> and I, we had employees that were saying like, they came to my house. How did they get my address? But like, we're required to give the addresses to them at that point. And so, you know, there's, but it's the whole system that's wrong. It's not necessarily the union that's bad. It was like the whole system of access to the employees and everything that's just set up in a way that it's, inherently very unbalanced. And I've learned through this that even though we had this open door system, even though we had these benefits for our team and, you know, we really were like, we were, Mike and I were on the ground working with people, literally our offices were across from the production door office. We weren't in some high ivory tower or anything, but some people who worked for us have never been in that dynamic where they feel comfortable going up to their employer. And that was something that I think my privilege didn't allow me to see at the time where like I'm super comfortable in an environment where I've worked before where I can go up to my manager and I can say hey I'm having this issue here like let's work on a way to collaboratively solve this and come up with a solution that's my personality there's probably a lot of people that worked for us who did not feel comfortable even if I'm the friendliest person I mean right. even if a person is the friendliest person in the world just that yeah. yeah, just the fact that I'm authority and I'm the owner of the company, like they may not come to me. And so they feel more comfortable having someone else in the middle. And that's something I just really didn't see at the time. And so I've had to do a lot of thinking about systemically as we were creating a more diverse workforce, as we're creating people who were formerly incarcerated, as we're really diversifying the workforce, how those needs shifted and how those power dynamics shifted and changed the culture that we were building. And this maybe necessitated different things from Mike and I as leaders to make sure that everybody's needs were still being met. They thought the union was the option. I still don't think that that was the only way to go about it, but I understand why they thought that it was. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This disruptive to, I can only imagine this being disruptive to production, to results, to morale, to efficiency. I mean, I've done all the studies. I know how bad, like if you have a culture issue, it can destroy your company. It can cost you a lot of money from it trickling down to the morale scenario, not being as productive as you could be because you're all worked up and involved in all this other stuff, right? I'm certain that they were filling their time having conversations about this during work hours and not just meeting for coffee afterwards, right? So how did that impact your business? It was tough. It became really contentious. There were strong feelings on both sides, I think, of people who felt very adamantly that the union was the only outcome, the only option. And there were people who felt very adamantly that they didn't feel it was necessary and that we have always done what we said we were going to do and we were always very accessible. And again, that might be the cultural differences that we started to see. It might be just 
I'm not sure, you know, what to pin that on, but, and then there were people that were caught in the middle, but yeah, those conversations were happening and they were getting really heated and they were distracting. And then we did hold a series of these meetings, which also took people off of the production floor. They were paid, of course, and everyone has to go to meetings as you're an employee in a company. Sometimes you have to go to mandatory meetings. So it was distracting and distressing for Mike and I to try to navigate it, to try to keep everyone's sort of still feeling the same level of culture that we had before, but it really felt like someone was pulling apart a family where you've just got two very passionate groups of people who used to kind of just get along just fine. But now there's this catalyst that is really dividing. It was very divisive and it's tough because we can no longer have conversations with people at that point as, as leadership. And so it's sort of like you want to support your team and hear them, but you really can't. And right. so, so how did yeah, you it's it? tricky. Well, the union vote, the union went to vote and it was voted down, but ended up causing a lot of issues. There were a couple of people who were very passionate about the union who still to this day believe that the company was in the wrong for having the meetings and have caused, you know, a lot of public relations issues, contacting our customers, direct outreach to retailers. No. Okay. I'm like, yeah, my HR, like insides are oh my god <laughs> yeah. I'm praying that they weren't they weren't still working for you okay so they thought everything was in the wrong and they felt they felt terribly wronged with the outcome and so they took it public they took it really public i think unions and things happen to companies all the time but i think one of the things that was unique here is that they recorded the meetings and so it became a tool or a teaching tool for people who were seeking to to unionize their own companies and so we kind of became a model of what not to do as a company and so it was really it was picked up by they really Kudos to them. They like they really did a good job marketing this to all of the liberal, very liberal kind of union organizing news outlets. And they made an example of No Evil Foods. And at the time, it was enraging. So I was like, we we did everything legally. Like, what what's the problem here? And like now I see that it wasn't just that we did things legally or illegally. It was the fact that we did them at all. And I see that now. And again, it goes back to those power dynamics and those just systems of workplace inequities. But I didn't see that then. And so I'm just like, why are these people just going after us like this? Like we've done nothing wrong and we're trying to build a good company. Like we're giving hundreds of pounds of food to food banks every year and like really going, bending over backwards to like build the company that other people dream about building. And yet it's not enough because you didn't get the one thing that you wanted, which was the union. So it was really tricky, but it was very aggressive. They, and I shouldn't even say was because they are still being very aggressive about it, but they reaching out to our customers directly. If a customer engages with us on social media, leaves a comment on our post, they will direct message that customer and say, Hey, have you heard about this? Like they make it sound current rather than two and a half years old. Cause in their mind, it doesn't matter how much time has passed. It was the fact that it was done at all. And so it's been very tricky. Yeah. They have a lot of time on their hands and they're going to watch this episode. So like, it's, it's kind of crazy. They have way too much This will become a meme. And go to life. Like (laughs) I, people like this irritate the nonsense out of me. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like get a life. This company was great before you came along. So you're offering, you're bending over backwards more so than 
80% of the companies out there, especially small businesses to offer all of your employees that much, right? Like I work yeah. with startups, you're being very generous, right? I just find those people to be bitter, angry, nasty people that are always going to find reasons to destroy people. It's because they're not happy within themselves. I, I feel like that's the bottom line, right? Yeah, I mean, I think when you do go that far out of your way to tear somebody down, I think that's not the space I like to operate in. I think right. that it's a really hard space to to consistently yeah. be. I think that they see it as like social justice warriors and that they're really making a difference and they're spreading the word on a company that's done the worker wrong yet again. And I just think that there's there's a spectrum of workplaces and on the spectrum we did a lot of things right. And there were certainly yeah. things we did wrong. I, I, and I, yeah. I, is there anything legal you can do to get? Probably, but I mean, it's probably not worth it at this point. Yeah. You know, there's no, I don't think there's any damages we can seek from them. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, but it's something we've chosen not to pursue. We just try to yeah. keep building a positive company yeah. and keep trying to get our, our message out there the best that we can. Yeah. It's like you the more good that we put simple. out. You can block them on social media so they can't post on your, unless they just create another account, but just. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's something simple. I, I, your customers have to think it's a joke. I mean, Walmart and Whole Foods really take in consideration some person messaging. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I think that if I were on the other end working at one of your customer, if I was one of your customers, I'd be like, who's this person? Like, seriously. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Hopefully they don't take it serious. Right. Hard, hard to say, but it, it's been a, it's been a journey. You know, Mike and I have been turned into memes, like a lot of like personal assaults because they didn't agree with the decision of the business at the time. And I get that you didn't agree. I think there's a lot of different ways that you can go about that. And there's probably more positive ways to, to approach it. And again, we've also changed our minds on, or, or not, we've broadened our knowledge of what happened and we regret the way that we handled it. I don't think that we had much of an option at that time. It doesn't make it okay, but it's something that we're working to get past. And I think everyone should have the opportunity to do that. People aren't born generally, I'm the exception maybe, but most people aren't born vegetarian or, or, or vegan, right? But at some point in their life, they come to a point where they were vegetarian, they ate meat for their entire lives thought nothing of it and thought that it was the right thing to do. Society tells them, this is what you do. Like, there's no other option. Don't be vegan. That's crazy. Right. And then one day their perspective shifts and they see things from a different angle and they look at, you know what? I see that animals are not there for me to be food. And I'm no longer going to do that because now they understand like speciesism, right? It's another system of power and they decide to take animals off their plate. I don't expect that person to make a public declaration about how horrible they were for the past 40 years of their lives before they got to the point where they decided to do better and they had more knowledge. We're, we're humans and we evolve. And that's the beauty of being human is that you can change your perspective. And then when you know better, you do better. And I think that we haven't been granted that same opportunity. I think with business, we welcome people at every stage of their journey in veganism, and we don't want them to apologize for having eaten a burger in their past. We want them to understand that that's not the way to move forward and then choose to eat better every day 
after that. And so I think, you know, it's kind of the only analogy I can come to for this, but no one's born with all the knowledge that we need. And I think that it's okay to make mistakes and to, to learn from them, but it's not the end of the story. That was a, a major hiccup, but that was in February of 2020. So what happens in March of 2020? COVID, of course. Yeah. And so that was another, you know, it, huge learning growth phase where we're like, oh shoot, we're considered an essential business. We are food manufacturing. We still have orders coming in. We still want people to be able to access our products, to stay healthy by eating well. And so we've got to keep the manufacturing open during that time. And that was problematic. We were trying, people didn't know how to react to this virus. We didn't know there was no guidance from the government. Like there was no playbook for this. And so we made the best choices that we could to keep our doors open and to stagger shifts and to spread people out. And like, we're not like assembly line where everyone's like shoulder to shoulder. So we had a lot of space to begin with, but we also had a lot of people who were really scared to come to work, but also we need people to come to work. And so we had at that point tried to say like, Hey, if you consistently come to work for a period of days, we'll give you like a perfect attendance bonus or something. The team was like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Like that's not the way to approach it. And so we retracted that and we ended up giving everyone a mandatory $2 and 25 cent like COVID pay increase. And so that's what we did. We bumped everybody's pay. It was like a higher pay bump than Kroger was doing for their employees or any other company that I had heard of. Again, we're super small, we're not profitable, but we're like, how do we, how do we make this a, a, a win-win so to speak so that we can keep operating, we can keep generating revenue. We can keep our employees like rewarded for coming into work when they're not feeling super secure about that. Like what's the, be the best work choice that we can make here. And so that was it for us. And our team, I guess, had circulated a petition about this pay bump and someone told us about it. And so we knew that it was happening. And so we said like, they could have just come and talked to us about it, but they didn't. They did this behind the back thing that was divisive again. So we're just going to cut to the chase and just give them the pay bump they wanted anyway. Like consider that a win. But that really pissed them off and because we didn't acknowledge their, their hard work on the petition. And oh my so, gosh. What's amazing like we to can, me is that we I can have do no right. so many friends who got their salary sliced, like mm -hmm. took a 10 to 50% hit during COVID just to keep their jobs. And here you have people like what, I'm curious, what would their reaction be if you said we have to lay off? 50% of you. So you either keep the job you have and work at the rate you're working or like, are they grateful at all? Well, the layoffs came next. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, I just find this mesmerizing. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Yeah. So this is like, we got to the pinnacle. We were expanding in all these retailers. We were growing our team. We built this beautiful facility. We were giving back to the community. Like we were feeling really proud of everything. And then the union came and that, that slowed us down. It kind of stuck us in the mud for a little while, but we got past it. And then COVID came and that definitely knocked us down a few pegs. But then the change to the retail landscape came. And consumers weren't going into stores anymore and they were shopping very differently and they were buying very differently and grocery stores weren't 
doing reviews to bring new products onto the shelf and they weren't offering additional shelf space and it was really hard to bring on new stores. And so we had built this big facility with the expectation of a certain level of growth that all of a sudden wasn't there. And so our company went very inverted and it went really upside down. And so now our cash burn, in part because of the benefits and the investments and the COVID bumps and all the things that we were trying to do to be a good employer, they ended up really hurting us. And our company was really upside down and we were burning about $500,000 a month. And that was not sustainable for our small business. We were working on raising more capital. We had thought that we were going to raise the capital, we were really, really close. And at the last minute, the investment pulled out and that left us with $30,000 in the bank. And we didn't think we had any options at that time, but to shut it all down. And so we ended up laying off like 60% of our staff. And that included closing the manufacturing facility that we had invested in and dreamed of and labored on and created and fostered and grew and all of the people that helped us do that also lost their jobs if they were directly manufacturing related jobs but at that time it was like survival and we didn't you know we didn't have enough money for the next paycheck the next round of of payroll so we shut it all down mike and i took 50 percent pay decreases. We've still yet to bring ourselves back up to the, and we're now a team of three. It's Mike and myself and our co-founder, or not co-founder, our chief growth officer. And the three of us are holding it together. We've switched to a co-manufacturing model, trying to get product back into the marketplace. But it has, when you say it's a roller coaster ride, it's like entrepreneurship. There's nothing like it. You get these intense highs when you're just on top of the world and you're like natural food celebrity and then you get these devastating lows and I think it's like that with so many startup ventures but we only talk about the highs and I know this has been a very long conversation and we've only just scratched the surface of but it's not good because it's like all the details do you know how many people deal with like we've uncovered so many layers of things like the benefits the employees the funding, the production, the growth, the massive growth, and then you crashed and burned. Obviously, COVID had a huge impact on that. And I was really hoping you're going to say through some of the PMP and through all of that stuff, you guys were able to pull through, but you're right. Especially if you don't know the brand yet, that's a lot to sustain in a grocery store where people aren't going to the grocery store, right? Yeah selling new so you're back to three so what happened to i know this is really raw and i so appreciate you sharing your story and i am a true believer that if you take what you've learned you're gonna it's gonna be better than you could ever imagine on the other end right you just have to have faith and believe and it may feel like you're hitting rock bottom but trust me i've been there and the amount of things that you learn during this process about yourself and about the business and it just makes you a huge makes you so much stronger and it gives you so much benefit so many benefits that others don't see like you just have a different set of eyes and you see things differently and opportunities galore that you would never even think about like i just want to encourage you that this isn't it may feel devastating but it is the path to greatness and i know that sounds crazy but that's what I believe. So what did you do with this facility? 
So the facility, we rented it. It was never a purchase that we made. So we got out of the lease. Someone else is in there. I think there's like a chocolate maker in there now. Oh. So I'm really happy to see that it's used. It was really, it was a very nice facility. But, you know, yes, the learning has been just monumental. And yes, rock bottom like a hundred times. And every time we think that this is it and we're going to need to shut the doors and there's just no way we can sustain this flow. You know, the home manufacturer that we moved into was never able to make more than 20% of our demand. So like we thought that we had an option. It took way longer to get set up in that co-manufacturer and then they ended up being a absolute nightmare partnership where they could never make product they had so many quality issues half of the product that they did make we couldn't send out the door because it just didn't meet our our quality controls and so only 20 percent of the revenue is coming in like right when we think that we'll like be able to rise up again like something else like takes us back down. So we finally pulled the plug on that. And then we moved into another co-manufacturer, which is fantastic. And so like there is a happy ending in that, well, I don't think it's the end yet, but right. we're with a new co-manufacturer now. They're a completely vegan facility. They make wonderful product. They can actually hit our demands. But there was a period there of like six months where we had zero revenue because we had to abruptly stop the co-manufacturer who was terrible and then source and ramp up manufacturing at a completely new manufacturer across the country where we had no product going out the door. And so we had no revenue coming in. And so that was incredibly hard. We lost a lot of shelves and we lost a lot of doors. We're down to about 1500 again. That's These are, I mean, it's, it is still pretty good. All things considered, like yeah, I'm not, I'm not, great. I'm not going to complain about yeah, that, It's a launching but we're, yeah, we are very much in a rebuilding stage. I mean, I think that for doing this for eight years, for the number of hits that we have taken, the number of bizarre circumstances that our company has been through and been able to to grow past, it's just remarkable. Like the fact that we're still, like so many people would have given up for so much less sure. than we have given up for. Like we just, we believe in this so much. We believe in the mission. I think that this is our life's work is to do this and to connect people with food and provide really simple ingredient protein options for people who want to eat better, for people who want to be environmentally sustainable, for people who want to support a plastic negative certified company. Like right. we're still a conscious brand. We've had a lot of mistakes. That's the only way we, that you yeah. go and you get better, right? Like every company out there didn't get successful company, didn't get there by being perfect the whole time, right? We're human mm -hmm. and it's life's a journey and it's full of lessons, right? I think that that's great. And but I think so many companies go through this, but they don't talk about it no. at all. It happens all the time. And so I think that one of the things we're trying to be, we are more public about what we've been through. A lot of people wouldn't come on this podcast. And over the years, we've uncovered more and more of the story and be more comfortable. And with the understanding of in time, like passage of time, we can look at it differently and see how our role in it was different than when it was very, very fresh. Right. Um, but these things happen all the time and people don't talk about them. And so then when you hear someone talking and sharing the story that I'm sharing and oh my gosh, like where were you two years ago when I was dealing with this? Yeah. Like there's so much 
information about how to start a startup, but there's really very little information for what to do when things start going wrong, how to bounce back from that. How do you rebuild? How do you keep your head in the game? How do you survive? How do you find stability again? And so, you know, for us, it's really going back to our roots and really going back to our customer and thinking about those early days when our customer would ask for us at the store. They're still asking for us at the store. And so like one of the things we're doing right now is trying to bring back online ordering because we used to have such an expansive retail footprint. It's shrunken shrunken quite a bit. And so we've got people who love us all across the country whose neighborhood store doesn't carry us anymore because we didn't have the product to send them for a while. And so now we've got to rebuild to get back in. So we're reopening our online store to make sure that person, we used to be a regular source of protein for them, can still have access and they can buy it from us directly, ship it on our website and have it come straight to their doorstep. So it's like going back to accessibility, going back to meeting the needs of our customers, like not this crazy growth ride. Like we still have the VCs out there. They're not going away. Like they still own us. But if we don't exist, there's no chance that we're ever going to give them the return they're looking for. But if we keep going and we pair it back and we kind of start from scratch, we get back to basics we can rebuild this thing. And like, I'm not looking to turn and burn it. I've been with this, just not not the way that we're approaching it. So yeah. I think it's getting back to your why, right? And getting Mm -hmm. back to the basics. And I just have to reiterate, you are the prime reason why I started this podcast, because everyone hears about the success stories and we don't get in the nitty gritties and tell the obstacles or the challenges that we face. And I've been there when I felt totally deflated. I had no idea what I was doing. I was a first time founder. I like no clue. And it just felt like world was caving in, right? but there was still hope and there was still this, but I believe in this, but I don't yeah. know what to do, right? <laughs> right? And so I just can't thank you enough for being so vulnerable and sharing all of that info because it's real, it's real. And you can't tell me that in success stories didn't experience some type of challenge, right? And it's not about the negativity, it's just about sharing real life and building a company and you're overcoming the obstacles and founders. I don't know what the percentage is. I would love to know, but how many founders don't come from a business background? Not, it's not necessary. There's Mm -hmm. the whole business product, whatever, but your passion lies with your why. And I think that's fantastic, right? And it's coming from your roots and that shines through in just your story and just telling about it. And I think it's going to be fantastic. I mean, I, I think a book someday, right? Have you thought about writing a book? Definitely. We have. I think there's just, there's so much wisdom that we've gained and we've gained it the hard way. And we've, hurt people along the way. Like layoffs are never easy. Like that sucked to have to stand up in front of our team who had helped us build this thing and tell them that like, we essentially screwed up. We ran out of money. Like that's awful. People who devoted their time and they committed themselves to your company. And I'm so sorry that like we had to do that. 
but we will move forward. They will. They may not. They definitely didn't see it at the time. And maybe they haven't yet. But I think that they will even learn from that experience. Like, say, if you've ever been fired for a job or gotten a really hard review, it's awful at the time. You're like, God, like, why is my manager such an asshole? Like, I'm doing a great job here. And then you grow up, you mature a little bit. And like, you realize that there's a learning that happens there. I think even there's something to take away, a positive aspect or learning or experience that you can take from anything. And I think it's all mindset. It's all perspective, trying to have a positive mental attitude, even in the, you know, when you're faced with these immense challenges is the only way to go through life. And I think that like living with compassion and following a vegan lifestyle has been really helpful to me in all of that. It really is a big why that, that, that guides me as best as it can to making good decisions that ripple out in positive ways. Sometimes it's, it's not, but you know, it's, you, you, nobody is infallible. I think that it's how you react next time, what you take away from it that matters and you know, how you stick with it. I think that we're not quitters and that there's so many issues that we're really pushing against that we're trying to have an impact on that it's important for us to be here. We have a right to be here and to grow this company and to continue to thrive. And so it's kind of nice to pair back because it's, we have a second opportunity at the same company. I think, you know, what 80% of first companies fail, right? And so I think we're in a really unique position that we've, we ha- it's the same company, but we have all of the knowledge of the first eight years to now use to create the next iteration of our company where we can do things differently. We can do things better. We can do things more smartly, more sustainably. And I think that that's the really wonderful outcome here is that like, we've already been through all the shit. Like we've learned all the hard lessons. And so now how can we use those hard lessons to make better choices to rebuild this. And I think the fact that we have the opportunity to do so is something that we don't take lightly. And we're really going to make every effort possible to keep this company moving forward and and growing stronger. I think that's awesome. You get a redo. I love it. Yeah, Um, I think it's awesome. So quick question, because I know that you mentioned this before, and then I know that this has been long, but it's worth every second. However, how did the impact of the beyond like i don't know if i should name them but the big names in the retail and fast food markets how did that impact or did it impact your company i because i know that we talked about how they're getting funding and acting as like a technology company right their ingredients i don't know what half of those ingredients are because i've used to eat them and i have no idea so how does that impact your products? I think brands, and I'll call them out, Beyond and Impossible, I think they, they've done a lot to help and I think potentially harm the plant-based meat industry in particular. Like one of the great things that they've done is because they made plant-based meat sort of sexy and they like with, with this sort of textile growth, they really brought a lot of attention and new life into the space and they've raised so much capital. So they were able to really realize the message and help push the conversation of plant-based meats mainstream, right? So now almost everyone knows what it is, whether they've tried them or not, like remains to be seen, but people know what it is where previously they're like, oh, tofu, like it was still a little bit people were unsure. And so I think that's the fantastic benefit is that they really shined a very large spotlight onto the industry. I also think that it was an increasing challenge for our brand and other smaller brands like ours, because 
they've got 400 million plus dollars at their disposal, which means their marketing budgets are much, much, much higher. Their marketing budget's higher than our total investment, I'm sure. And so the playing field is very uneven there. Again, power dynamic, we also have them as a company. And I think that it's challenging. We're held to the same standards by our retailers. They want us to be selling at the same volume as brands like Impossible and Beyond, mm -hmm. but we don't have the budgets that they do. So it's really, I don't want to say unfair, but it's unreasonable, I think, to expect a, a brand that's smaller, a startup, to compete at the same level as a brand like Beyond and Impossible. Also startups, but very, very well-funded with very skilled teams who've been in the industry for a long time. I also think that a lot of brought plant-based meats mainstream, but they've also sort of, again, put the emphasis on those two brands specifically, which detracts from the wide variety of plant-based meat options from ingredients and an innovation perspective. So, you know, there's so much more out there than plant-based burgers and meatballs. But when people think plant-based meat, they think beyond meat, they think impossible food. They've almost become synonymous. And so I think that's really tricky because the category itself is at its core, it's a better for you category, right? People come to plant-based foods because they want to eat better. They want to be healthier. They want healthier food for their family. But because these brands have marketed to the fast food consumer, they're really missing the mark and they're sort of conflating plant-based foods with fast food and people are mistaking plant-based foods as a whole as being an unhealthy protein source that is made from a lot of processed ingredients and a lot of oils and fats and that it's not all that much healthy than eating the animal-based sort of alternative. And so I think that's been a disservice to brands like mine, for instance, but many others who are creating plant-based proteins with simple ingredients that you do feel like good enough, like you could make a habit out of, you could feed it to your family every day and not kind of feel a little bit like, oh, I might as well just eat the burger. Like you really are getting a healthier option. Right. And so I think that's been really tricky because now our marketing needs to work even harder to sort of combat the prevalent message of plant-based foods being unhealthy or overly processed because of the types of products and the visibility that brands like Beyond and Impossible have, have raised. And I also think that this larger conversation about the sort of the downfall of plant-based meat or the plant-based meat bust, it's really the fault of brands like those mismatching the consumer. Nobody is eating a burger every day of the week and people who are eating plant-based foods, they're not going to Burger King for their meals. They're not going to KFC for chicken nuggets. We do it once or twice because it's fun and we've never eaten at a KFC before. It's been 15 years. And so the like road. there's a novelty to it, right? We're on the road, we're in the airport, but those are not the people who are going to come back for repeat purchases. And we're just, we're marked, we missed the target. And so I think there's some like product market alignment that still needs to happen in plant-based meats and some undoing of, of the kind of common perception that plant-based meat is unhealthy. And we're really hoping to help do some of that, that undoing yeah. with no evil foods. That's a big feat, but that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So how can we help you? What can we do? I, we want to support you. 
Well, we are again going back to basics. And so one of the things that we're doing, I mentioned that our retail footprint has has shifted in the, the past several months when we had those out of stocks. And so we're bringing back our online ordering and that's an investment in a new website to make online ordering a lot more user-friendly to be able to add subscriptions so people can have, you know, plant meat deliveries at their door at the intervals that, that they want them, new partnerships for the distribution chain. All of that is very expensive particularly when you're distributing like a frozen product like ours and shipping that direct. It's not like we're shipping bags of chips. It's heavy. We're using sustainable shippers. We're using ice packs. So all of those costs are more. And so we are helping to raise funds with a new market campaign, sort of like crowdfunding, but it's a little bit different where it works on the concept of credits. So if you contribute $100, let's say, to our, our new market campaign, we return that $100 plus an additional 20%. So you get $120 to use in our online store as credits to ah. like buy plant meat, to buy merch, whatever you want to get. Where so you go for that? it's new market, N-U-M-A-R-K-E-T dot co slash fund slash no dash evil. <laughs> Okay. Well, you can also go to our website and find a link there. Okay. Yeah. I've never heard of this new market. I need to add it. Our website will soon have a ton of resources. So crowdfunding website or crowdfunding resources, all, everything that somebody would need from banking to insurance, to marketing, to like, if somebody just needed to start from scratch, all the resources, as well as a whole awesome. list, over a hundred VCs and angel funding fund angel investors who invest in women particularly across multiple arenas and just a wealth of resources for everyone and so i would like to add that new market i need to check it out yeah so yeah from copywriting to marketing to advertising everything tools you name it so we can add that to that but yeah so that's cool Thanks for telling me about that. Cool. And I go to your website. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we're hoping to raise 50000 We're about 11000 right now. So I think there's 24 days left in the campaign. We've got quite a ways to go. But I think the important thing to remember here is that it's like, you get everything back. It's not It's not like a, a wee funder or anything like that. Your money doesn't just go away. Like we, we're going to return it to you as credits, but it does help us get this off the ground as we rebuild. Yeah. So awesome. um, yeah, really hoping yeah. to make it a big success. And we'll include that in the comments and in our newsletter and everything else. So we'll try to get this out ASAP for you to try to beat that 24 days. Somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah. It also makes a great gift. You know, you can buy your friends some socks or you could buy them a credit for plant meats. Yeah. Always, always somebody that's hard to buy for. So yeah, especially for all the vegans out there, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, yay. I'm excited to try your products as well. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to launch this episode, but what I really am looking forward to is I can't wait to have you on as a guest in like a year to see like what all has transpired and everything that all the exciting stuff that you can tell us in trials and tribute, whatever the case may be, right? Just to hear about your ride in a year. That would be so fun. And that I would be awesome. Would it be awesome? I would love it. Yeah. And I can't thank you enough for joining me and being on the podcast and being so vulnerable. Like I really, really appreciate it. I think it's awesome. It well, thank you for giving me, uh, thanks for giving me the space. The more that I've done this and come out and talk about this, the more other people have opened up to me. And I think that just as a society, we need to be a lot more open about yeah. like 
our failings and you know it's it's all part of life and it's all how you what you make of it so yeah yeah absolutely. we're happy to be here absolutely awesome all right well you have a great day if you need anything else let me know okay, okay. thank you so much sorry it was so long i know it's fine <laughs> i loved it all right talk soon well thank you bye, bye.